Good evening. Hope you all are doing well this evening. It's good to see everyone out, and hopefully uh, as we study for the next few minutes tonight, we can uh, study God's Word with open hearts and we can learn something that we can take with us through our walk as a Christian. We live in a complex world, a world with a lot of difficult questions that people ask and kind of talk about, and recently I've heard one of these questions kind of being debated a lot, and it goes something like this. When does Christmas officially start, and am I allowed to put up my Christmas tree yet? Uh, that's a very difficult question that people are, uh, are, are talking about right now, and I don't purport to have an answer to that question, nor will I be giving one from the pulpit as an official stance, but I do know that we are in the holiday season, uh, generally. We can all agree on that. Uh, it started with Halloween, I believe, and now we're just on the roller coaster to 2022. It's going to be here before we know it. And with holidays on the brain, as I'm thinking about this, Halloween, Thanksgiving coming out, Christmas, all of these things, it brings to mind all of these mental images that kind of come along with the holidays. And all the holidays have these really kind of strong mental images I put with them. And that's why when you go to the store, you kind of see the decorations up like you would expect. So if we played a game and I said, you know, when you think of the holidays, what's the first mental picture that comes to your mind? For instance, when you think about Halloween, what's the first thing that comes to your mind? I heard pumpkin. That's, what, that's the right answer. Pumpkin's the right answer. You think of a pumpkin, right? You, candy's acceptable, uh, but pumpkin's the right answer. That's the first thing that comes to my mind, so that's what makes it right. Uh, what about Easter? Uh, you, egg, I saw egg. That's right. Bunny's also acceptable, though I've never seen a bunny lay an egg. But bunny or egg goes along uh, with Easter. And then if I say Christmas, you might think of a Christmas tree, right? Christmas presents, these kinds of things that go along with it, something along those lines. Well, what about Thanksgiving? What's the first thing that comes to your mind? Wrong. That's the wrong answer. Not turkey. I, I understand why you thought that, but that is not right. The turkey is not the defining image of Thanksgiving. The defining image of Thanksgiving is the dinner table. That is the defining image of Thanksgiving. And the reason for that is because I love food. That's why, and turkey's involved, but none with feathers, right? I don't want to see a turkey with feathers on Thanksgiving. I love food, and I love Thanksgiving food, right? The brand of food that people make at Thanksgiving, ham and turkey, cream corn and mashed potatoes, uh, mac and cheese and rolls. I love any food on the color spectrum from white to yellow, right? Beige food, that's my favorite. Starchy, uh, I love Thanksgiving food. You probably have a favorite Thanksgiving food that you can think of, a favorite Thanksgiving meal, and, and maybe even a favorite table, that you gather around for Thanksgiving as you think about that get-together. And I, I think that's good, and that's the way that it should be. But it's amazing in, in the world that we live in, the appreciation for that kind of thing is starting to fall, I think. I think the world is changing uh, in some ways because, you know, people still like to eat good food, if you will. As we look around the world, people are still eating good food. But for one thing, it's widely available. We don't really think about food as something scarce. We may be at that point uh, at some point in our lives, but right now food is pretty widely available. Most of us don't go hungry. You can look at me and tell I do not go hungry. I, I eat food quite often. Uh, and we, we like good food, food in general, but for the most part, it's, it's available to us. We don't think about it something that we can't get. Many of us, by the grace of God, have never known hunger, real hunger, uh, and for those of us that have, I, I'm sure that you could relate uh, that experience to us and how difficult that is. And as for the table where the meals are shared together as a family, when we think about the dinner table, uh, Western civilization is really becoming too busy for the family to sit down and have a dinner together at the table. Uh, and, and you may say, well, I, me and my family have dinner at the dinner table all the time, and I hope you do, and that's wonderful. Uh, but the statistics kind of point the other way. A study by the New York University of Langone Health 
found that in the past 20 years, the frequency of family dinners has declined by 33%, right? So it was a pretty high number at one point, but a third of that has gone away. And I don't know what that means exactly, but I know it means that things have changed and, and times have changed and the way that people look at things has changed. But you may say, well, what's the big deal, right? What, what's the big deal about food, meals spent together, families gathering around the table? As long as people get fed, as long as the kids don't starve, everything's good, right? It's all, it's just food. Uh, it's just a place to sit. What's significant about it, right? What's significant about the food we eat? What special meaning can possibly be found in just a table where you sit and eat a meal together? Uh, it's commonplace. It's ordinary. There's nothing special about it or meaningful about it at all. Some, some people might say that. As time has gone on and you look at the realms of philosophy and, and the enlightenment and progress, and I put that in quotations if you could call it progress, it's changed the way that people look at their lives and they look at the things that are important in their lives. And in a dangerous way as, as a civilization really and as a people, we've moved dangerously close to being a people beyond feeling, right? We just don't feel things about stuff anymore. Things don't have value to them. Uh, nothing is sacred really anymore to, to us as we look at the world because it's all just stuff, right? It's all just things as we look at, but this was not always the way that it was. It's not always been this way, uh, nor should it have been this way. In spite of what people would have you believe if you talk to them out there, there is goodness and value in the blessings of life that God has given to us, the little things even as we would call them as we experience them, some things that seem common are actually of really big importance. They're really important. And one of those things is food, okay? We, and again, as I said, I love food, so I wanna talk about food for just a minute in, in some context in this sermon. But I think that if we look at the Bible, we see that there's a real significance to food. From the beginning of time, Food was always of great significance. God created Adam and Eve to be eating people, right? God made humans to eat. We eat food. Uh, some of the first details we have in Genesis are related to all the wonderful things that God had prepared for them in the garden that they could eat. And then what was the first command? If we look in Genesis chapter 2 and verse 16, it says, And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And so in the very first command, if you will, uh, that God gives here, eating is all over it. Food is all over this command in both a good way and a bad way. And so food does seem important from the very beginning, doesn't it? But it isn't just food in and of itself that holds all the importance or all the weight, but maybe even more so is the sharing of food between people. The Bible constantly talks about the sharing of food between people, the eating of a meal together. While it's an important fact that Eve took and ate of the fruit, we're also told the detail that then she took some of that fruit and did what? Shared it with her husband, and he took of it and ate as well. There's a kind of fellowship going on there that's no good, right? That's not a good kind of fellowship shared over food, but yet it happened there in the very beginning. But in the Bible at large, a lot of important things happen around shared meals. And that sounds, again, like it's commonplace, like it's ordinary, but a lot of important things happen around meals. Just this morning, Brother John spoke of the great promise God made to Abraham, right? That you're going to have all these offspring that come after you, even though Abraham was so old that, you know, Sarah's womb was dead, Abraham was old, they had no prospect of children. But in the account of Genesis 18, 
we have this fascinating story where the Lord shows up. It says he appears and visits Abraham's tent kind of as a visitor passing by with these two other men that we know are angels. And during that visit, Abraham and Sarah, in, in what I can only call a fit of extreme hospitality, prepare this meal for the Lord and the two angels. They, they have a calf prepared, and they make all of this food, and they lay it out for them. But it's in the context of that meal after Abraham has offered this to these men that God reveals to Abraham that this time next year you're going to have a son named Isaac, right? That's a big promise of the Bible. A lot hangs on that promise, and it actually happened in the context of that meal that Abraham prepared. And that's not the only time in the Old Testament that a shared meal holds all of this importance, and not even a meal involving God. Uh, when we think of the Exodus and Moses bringing the Israelites out of the land of Egypt, there's a lot of pictures in our mind. We think of the parting of the Red Sea, right there with the rod held up. Uh, we, we think of, you know, Israel coming to that great and terrifying mountain of Sinai where the presence of God came down. We think of Moses, who may or may not look like Charlton Heston, right? He's holding the two tablets of stone with the Ten Commandments coming down the mountain. All of these things come to mind. But do you remember the meal at Mount Sinai during the Exodus. Do you remember the feast that happened? Because we don't talk about it all that much, but there was a feast because in Exodus chapter 24, when it came time for Israel to confirm the covenant with God, uh, the one that he laid out for them in the law of Moses, we're told that God calls them up to the mountain. It says in Exodus 24 verse 1, now he said to Moses, come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel and worship from afar. And so as the people are standing at the foot of Mount Sinai, God calls Moses and a few chief men up to the mountain. And Moses, in preparation, he, he builds an altar. He makes all these sacrifices and offers these things to God. He, he gathers all the people and reads the text of the law. And they confirm and they say, yes, we agree to do that. And, and Moses says, absolutely. He takes the blood and he sprinkles on him and says, this is the blood of the covenant of God that you have agreed to and the Lord's made with you. But look at what happens next in verse 9. It says, then Moses went up, also Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel, and they saw the God of Israel. And there was under his feet, as it were, a paved work of sapphire and stone, and it was like the very heavens in its clarity. But on the nobles of the children of Israel he did not lay his hand. So they saw God, and then, interestingly, and they ate and drank. Now, that's very interesting to me and significant because, again, uh, usually if you go into the presence of God, there's a big danger of just falling down dead on the spot. <laughs> so for one, it's interesting that it says that God did not lay a hand on these sinful men when they came into his presence. But not only that, it says they saw God and they ate and drank. Have you ever eaten with somebody watching you eat before? I've never done it with somebody just staring at me intently. Imagine if God was watching you eat. I would be a mess, right? <laughs> Trying to make sure I don't talk with my mouth uh, open or whatever else or, or talk with food in my mouth jokes aside, this was a big deal at the time, right? When God brought them here and brought them to this feast on the mountain. And so one reason that's significant, that, that this happened, that they ate this feast in front of God at the time of the covenant, because at that time, a seat at the table meant something, right? If you were at the table, if you were at the table eating, that meant that you were accepted in the presence of that person, if you will. If you're accepted in the presence of that person, if they're inviting you to a meal as God invited these men here, then that meant that in God's terms, they were accepted, right? They were accepted at that table, and it meant more than just a place to eat and a meal to take part in. So in other words, at this point in time, a seat at this table or a seat at any table at the time could really say a lot about 
who you were and where you stood in the world. Now, certain tables were very exclusive at this time to eat and feast at a table like this, not unlike the feast on Mount Sinai. Out of all the people in history, not many have eaten a meal in the presence of God, right? That's something that very few people have been able to do, much less to get a meal that you're invited to by God as these men were. And therein lies another aspect of the meaning of the meal table as we see it in the Bible, and that's the invitation to the table. Because in, in this time, in the Bible times, getting invited to someone's table meant a lot more than just a guarantee to a full stomach, right? If I'm getting invited to a table, I know I'm going to have one good meal. That invitation represented the acceptance and approval of whoever was inviting you, however great that they may be. Now, again, we don't think as much about this today as we live our lives. In fact, it's kind of a cliche at Thanksgiving that you're going to have to eat with people that you don't accept and like. You hear people joke about that, right? Well, I'm getting together with the family, and Uncle Tom's going to start in on politics, and so-and-so is going to talk about their family and this boring story and whatever, and I'm just going to have to eat with these people that I don't get along with. So it's not a big deal today to eat a meal with people that you don't care very much about. But not so in how the Bible views approval at the table, right, and being invited to the table. For one, as we think about the Bible in the Jewish mind, Jews wouldn't even eat at the same table as a Gentile, right? The, way, the very act of eating with a Gentile was sinful, if not because that the food that the Gentiles were eating was unlawful according to the law of Moses, uh, because the Jews viewed the Gentiles themselves as unclean, right? These are sinful people. I won't have anything to do with these people. I'm not going to spend my time with them in fellowship. And so that, there's an aspect right there where even table fellowship was hugely important to the purity of their lives. Uh, this meant that if you did eat with somebody, a fellow Jew, you were showing them, hey, I accept you as a fellow member of God's covenant. I believe you're following the law of Moses. I believe that you're doing what God wants you to do in his purity commands and that we share a mutual fellowship as members of God's covenant people. And so just eating a meal with somebody could say all that, right? I accept you as a follower of God. But that meant the same for a refusal to eat with somebody, right? If I refuse to eat with somebody, that sends a clear message. I do not accept you. You are not right with God. We do not have fellowship. And that's an issue that actually arose in the early church. If you look at an account from the book of Galatians, something happened in Antioch uh, that caused quite a stir. It says in verse 11, Now when Peter had come to Antioch, I withstood him to his face because he was to be blamed. For certain men, before certain men came from James, he would eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, he withdrew and separated himself, fearing those who were of the circumcision. And the rest of the Jews also played the hypocrite with him, so that even Barnabas was carried away with their hypocrisy. And so Paul says, look, there was this situation where Peter, at certain times, would eat with the Gentiles. He would show them that I accept you. I accept you at my table. We're brothers in Christ. We have fellowship. But when these Jewish legalists came around, he wouldn't eat with the Gentiles anymore, right? And this is not just at the church cafeteria. You have the cool Jew kids table and the cool, you know, the, the uh, lame Gentile kids table over here. Peter would not eat with them. He wouldn't even be around them while they ate because he thought it would appear unclean to these people. He allowed the shame of sharing a table with an unclean person to divide the body of Christ. I mean, this is fellow Christians that we are talking about and Peter is causing division. So look at what Paul says in verse 14. 
uh, of Galatians 2, where he says, But when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter before them all, If you, being a Jew, live in the manner of Gentiles and not as the Jews, why do you compel Gentiles to live as Jews? Peter was not being honest with himself with the Jewish brethren or with the Gentile brethren. And in Paul's words, it did not reflect the truth of the gospel, right? This is not the gospel that Peter's living out when we withdraw fellowship from brothers. The gospel message is extending brotherly love to our fellow Christians in whatever context that may be. And that was the practice of the church from the earliest days that we see in the book of Acts. If you look in Acts chapter 2, verse 46, it says, So continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. And so as we see what the Christian lifestyle was in the earliest days of the church, It involved this idea of Christian community and fellowship where not only do we see each other on Sunday and maybe Wednesday night, day by day, daily, we're together worshiping God. We're breaking bread together in one another's houses. We're a part of each other's life because the the social order should never be family, friends, co-workers, people I go to church with, right? Those people you go to church with are your brothers and sisters. We have to be involved in each other's lives. And I I just imagine having this kind of fellowship in the church today. I I want this. I want this with you all. I, I want to have that kind of fellowship because I think that's what God intended for us to have. But that is not to say, when it comes to the issue of withdrawing or not withdrawing fellowship, that there's never a time to refuse someone's place at the table, to revoke that invitation. Because on the contrary, if a seat at the table carries that weight that if you are at the table, then you're experiencing the mutual love and the fellowship of salvation in Jesus, then there comes a time when, when a person who's been at the table rejects Jesus, rejects his law, rejects the love of Jesus, where they must not be allowed at the table of Christian fellowship. And that's harsh, and that's hard, but it's what the Bible teaches. In 1 Corinthians, Paul wrote to clear up some misunderstandings that the church there had because Paul had told them not to associate with certain worldly people, and they thought that meant we can't even uh, be around sinners at all. And Paul said, well, if that was true, you'd have to go out of the world because we're surrounded by sinners and by unbelievers, and we know that. We work with these people. uh, we're, We're surrounded by them. We love people that are not saved, that are around us. And Paul told the church it was common sense that we're going to be involved with these people in the world. But look what he said uh, in verse 11 here. But now I have written to you not to keep company with anyone named a brother who is sexually immoral or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or an extortioner, not even to eat with such a person. That's really hard to practice if it's somebody that you know and love and respect. Where is that line that forces me to tell someone, I'm sorry, I can't even eat with you until you repent, until you turn back to Jesus, right? That's, that's a difficult line to know where it hits, but, but the Bible teaches that's what we have to do because if our seat at the table means something, if sitting together at a table in Christian fellowship means something, then we have to protect the holiness of that seat, the holiness of that fellowship that God has extended towards us. If God has separated us and made us holy, then someone who stands up and walks out of the camp cannot be treated like nothing is wrong. We can't pretend that nothing is wrong and that nothing has changed because God has made us holy and we must maintain that holiness. It isn't fair to the person and it isn't pleasing to God if we act any other way. 
I want to mention one more thing about the significance of meals in the Bible, and that has to do with meaning assigned to meals or feasts that has to do with salvation history. And what I mean by that is meals that God is appointed to remind his people of the times that he has saved them. Meals to remind us of the time that God has saved us. The most famous example in the Old Testament has to be the Passover, right? When God sent the 10th plague on the land of Egypt, he commanded the Israelites to take a a perfect lamb, right? One per household. And the whole congregation is going to kill that lamb together at twilight. And we're familiar that the blood of that lamb was taken and it was uh, smeared, if you will, on the doorpost and the lentils of that house and that the angel of death would, would pass over that house as it was going through to kill the firstborn of every home in Egypt. But they weren't commanded to simply kill for the blood of this animal, right? Because we see in verse 7 of Exodus 12, and they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and on the lintel of the houses where they eat it. When, then they shall eat the flesh on that night, roasted in fire with unleavened bread and with bitter herbs they shall eat. Do not eat it raw nor boiled at all with water, but roasted in fire, its head with its legs and entrails. Does not sound the most appetizing to me to think about eating the entrails, but that's what God commanded them to do. And so on this night, on the night that God saved Israel from their Egyptian slave masters, he fed them. God fed the congregation of Israel and they shared this meal together with the flesh of this sacrificed lamb. But the meal they shared that night wasn't just for them, right? It wasn't just a meal for them on that night. Because if you look in verse 14, uh, notice what God says. So this day shall be to you a memorial and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. You shall keep it as a feast by an everlasting ordinance. And then verse 17, he notes again and says the reason why. So you shall observe the feast of unleavened bread for on this same day I will have brought your armies out of the land of Egypt therefore you shall observe this day throughout your generations as an everlasting ordinance so God says not only are you going to eat this meal tonight but throughout your generations you're going to keep eating this meal because you'll remember this is the day God brought us out of Egypt and so God instituted the Passover as this yearly meal that bore the importance of God providing salvation for his people. That's what the Passover meal was all about. And every year as you ate that meal, you were reminded right, of what God had done when he brought his people out of Egypt. But I do want to note one thing about this remembrance. It wasn't just an exercise in group meditation or looking backward. Because every year as they took part in this Passover meal, there was an aspect of particular participation in the story of God's salvation. In other words, I don't just eat the Passover meal because God saved my grandpa. I eat it and remember that just like he saved my grandpa, he's also going to save me. That's what the Passover was all about, remembering God's previous salvation and trusting in the promises of God that he would continue to bless and save through. Though later generations would live who never saw Egypt, who who were born long after Moses had died and the Israelites had settled into Canaan, when they ate the Passover meal, they were participating in the great story and promise of what God had promised to their grandfathers and their great-grandfathers before them. It's really a statement about faith in the God that we serve. When we partake, if they partook in that meal, that they serve the God who kept his promises long ago, and we eat this meal because we know he will keep his promises to us as well. We can say a lot about the customs of food and meals in the Bible as we have tonight, fellowship around tables of God's people from Sinai uh, to the church of Christ. 
But I've yet to mention the elephant in the room, right? We, we've talked a lot about tables in this lesson, and yet we're sitting here in this room with a table, right? There, there's a table here, that uh, we call it that at least, this podium down on the floor right in our midst. Everything the Bible has to say about the importance of food and, and fellowship, of invitations to the table and shared meals, it, it finds its culmination and it found its culmination on a, on a dark night, really before the darkest day of human history, when a group of men met to celebrate a feast in an upper room. If we look in Luke chapter 22, it said, When the hour had come, he, Jesus, sat down and the twelve apostles with him. Then he said to them, With fervent desire, I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say to you, I will no longer eat of it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Then he took the cup and gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, gave thanks, and broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood which is shed for you. Before Jesus went to the cross and died for our sins, his earnest desire was to share a meal with those closest to him. He wanted to share the Passover feast with his apostles. The events surrounding that meal are of great importance as we look at them. Jesus washed the feet of these men, including the one who would betray him to death, Judas Iscariot. Jesus told his apostles of this commandment to love one another as he had loved them. Jesus said to them, I am the way, the truth, and the life. This was maybe one of the most important dinner parties in all of human history, this feast of the Passover that Jesus shared with his apostles. As we think about that meal that they shared together on that night in our context as it applies to us today, in a world where meals have lost their meaning and gathering around the tables is no longer the norm, I think we face a particular danger for us today of forgetting all the meaning that's wrapped up in the Lord's Supper, the supper that we partake every first day of the week together. And I think there's a few reasons for that. For, for one, the ordinary nature of what we can see and eat sometimes trips us up. That is a very nice table down there. I, I love that table. It's been there as long as I can remember. It's steadfast. I like the words carved into it. It's great. But it's made out of wood, Right? We can see it. We can touch it. If you looked inside of it like I am right now, there's a stapler and a bunch of pencils. Uh, there was a broken calculator in there until Wednesday when Mathis took it and threw it away. It's a very ordinary table, right? That's what we see when we look at it. And, and you know, that, that doesn't strike us as anything special. It can seem very normal to us. What about this? I'm holding up one of these things right here. In a culinary sense, I do not like these things at all. I just talked about liking food. Well, this, this critic's review is I don't super like these. I wouldn't give you a nickel for one. I probably wouldn't just eat one and drink one on my own accord if you gave me a nickel just on a regular day of the week, right? So as, as we eat and drink this, there's nothing special about the food and drink we find here, right? There's nothing exciting about it as we take it in and ingest it. Um, with COVID protocol and switching to these, which we've done, we can really get the Lord's Supper done in about a minute now, can't we? If not even less, which I'm, I'm happy that we can do this. I'm happy we can do this and it's easy and it's safe for, for our purposes. But Again, as we get into this habit, it's, it's a danger of something becoming too easy, right? Too commonplace, too, too normal to us to where we can almost gloss over it in our mind. But the reality is there's nothing commonplace 
about what happens with this table every first day of the week. There's nothing normal about it. There's nothing about it that we should just gloss over and pretend as if nothing special is happening. For one thing, the authority that presides over this table is no less than the authority of the risen Son of God, right? He's the host of this table. If the table does belong to the Lord, and that's what we call it, right? In just a minute, someone will get up and say, the Lord's table has been left prepared if anybody has a need to take of it. If that's the Lord's table, then none of us deserve to eat from it. None of us deserve a seat at the Lord's table. I, Titus Anderson, I'm never going to be invited to eat with a king or a queen. It's never going to happen. Uh, I will never be invited or welcome at a table of the world's richest billionaires, nor would I necessarily want to go. Uh, I probably wouldn't have a lot to talk about with them. But those tables are paltry compared to the table of Jesus Christ. Who would dare sit at the table of the sinless lamb of God and partake in the food of his sacrifice? I don't feel ready to walk up to the table and grab something off of it. And yet, I've been invited to this table. I'm welcome to sit at this table and eat. The sacrifice has been laid before sinners of all people, and the Son of God says what? Take and eat of my table. Everything in my head says I don't belong at this table, but Jesus bids us to come and eat together on his account. That's what happens at this table on the first day of the week. And we're sometimes guilty of having a checklist mindset with our Christianity, right? We get busy, we get in a rut spiritually, and we start to just do things because, again, we know we're supposed to do them, we know it's the right answer, we know the verse in the Bible, we need to do these things. Uh, Check the box, if you will, for our Sunday worship, and I understand that, but I want you to listen carefully to the distinction I'm about to make. We do not eat the Lord's Supper just to try and make Jesus happy by checking a box. We eat the Lord's Supper because we've been invited and accepted into the fellowship of God, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, and we have confidence in the promises God has made to us. That's what that supper represents to us. So when we come together around that wooden table to eat and drink the less than appetizing eat and drink that we do, We do so as the unified body of Christ. We don't do it separately. We don't do it as individuals. We do it together. That means that the Lord's Supper is not just about my relationship with God, but it's about my relationship with each and every one of you because we all eat from the same table. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul says, The cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not the communion of the, blood, of the body of Christ? For we, though many, are one bread and one body, for we all partake of that one bread. There's something to be said for the fact that when it comes to the Lord's table, we all eat from one bread and drink from one cup. Now, not literally, right? It, it would be impossible to do that. Uh, I've heard, we, we know that there are people out there that believe that everybody in the church needs to drink from one cup, and we could have discussions about that, but what I will say is, one, nobody wants to do that for sanitary reasons, right? And number two, if all the church is supposed to drink from one cup, we're going to be running around a lot on Sunday to all the different churches delivering that one cup, aren't we? But it's not talking in a literal sense, but spiritually, we all gather around the same table, and we're all spiritually nourished from the same source, the one bread and the one cup of Jesus Christ. That means on any given Sunday, as we partake of the Lord's Supper, I can look around and see all my fellow Christians here at Center Grove 
that are partaking of the body and blood of Jesus in fellowship with one another. We have fellowship through that supper. And beyond my side, I can imagine our brothers and sisters in India, uh, in Europe, in Asia, wherever they are around the world, and they aren't taking it at the same time as us, are they? they they're on a different clock than we are, and, and I know it works differently in different places, but we still are all partaking of the same body and the same blood. We have fellowship with the church worldwide because we're all sitting at the Lord's table. We've all been invited to the same table with him. And even beyond that, I think about all the Christians from the very first days of the church on through the entire history of the church, even to those that we know and remember and love who have sat and ate at this table, right? They've partaken of the body and blood of Jesus. And then in my mind, I see a table that extends from now into eternity of all those who've been invited to partake of the body and blood of Jesus. We, every time we eat this meal and we think about all those who have eaten it before, are eating it, and will eat it in the future, we're reminded that one day we will be reunited for the greatest feast of eternity, right? The feast where we'll sit down with God and with all those who have come before in the eternal kingdom forever and ever, amen. And that's the day that we look forward to as we eat this meal. And, and that's what leads to the interesting statement by Paul, I think, in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six. There he says, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. There's an interesting kind of paradox there, isn't it? Every time we partake of this supper, we, we proclaim the Lord's death. He's dead. He died until he comes. Dead people don't come back, right, except for Jesus Christ. And we're assured that he is coming back. He's coming back to save us in the end and coming back to deliver us to the Father. And so when we eat the Lord's Supper, we don't just look back. We don't just look back at the death of Jesus as, as much of a part of it as that is. We look forward to the salvation that God has promised us because we believe that God will keep his promises that he's made to us. And so tonight, as we've talked about the shared table and having a seat at the table, with Thanksgiving coming up, we're going to be having these family meals. We're going to be sitting together and enjoying that time I'm not asking you to do anything different than you've ever done when it comes to the Lord's table or the fellowship of your Christians. I just want you to think about it. The worst thing that we could do is have the resource and the blessing of each other in this room and not appreciate the blessing that God has given us in the fellowship we have with one another. And so as you partake of the Lord's Supper together, as we do on the first day of the week, as we, as we have these times of fellowship together, Thank God for the blessing of fellowship. Thank God for an invitation to sit at his table. Because without that invitation, we would all be of all men most pitiable. The question tonight is, do you have a seat at the table? You've been invited. All have been invited. Even those out in the streets, as the parable says, have been invited to the feast. But not everyone accepts that invitation. Not everyone accepts the invitation to come and sit at the Lord's table. If you're not a Christian tonight, you can put on Christ in baptism and you can have a seat at the table with the Son of God. You can look forward to an eternity with him. But as we know and as we've mentioned, there are times when those who are at the table get up and walk away. We leave, uh, we forsake God, uh, and we follow after our own desires. And if that's you tonight, we urge you, we beg you, to repent, to, to turn back to God and sit back down at his table so that you can enjoy the fellowship with him and with your Christian brothers and sisters.